Hi, everybody. Welcome to Babble, and uh, we're going to be doing another podcast. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And today, um, in the second of our series of episodes that made people want to stop watching Voyager, uh, here is Season 2, The Thaw. Uh, and I guess one organizing principle in this podcast will be, is this worse or better than Threshold? Which is, of course, the other uh, episode that made people want to stop watching Voyager. I mean, well, at least Threshold had a fun setup and a good first act, and it didn't really go terrifyingly off the rails until the middle of the episode. I remember disliking well, and... Thaw almost the entire way through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... Uh... You know, I've talked about this before on TNG. Uh, coincidentally enough, you know, almost always during a Loxana episode, but one of my least favorite things is when Star Trek tries to create uh, jugglers or mimes or any sort of, you know, Performance what would you arts? call it? Like the circus arts? You know, like the, <laughs> you know. Like, it's okay. Like, even even the comic played by Joe Piscopo had a certain amount of, I don't know what, like, not making me want to gouge my eyeballs out. But, you know, which is the lowest amount of praise I can bestow on anything. Uh, <laughs> but all of their um, mimes and clowns and circus performers have just been reprehensible, awful. Well, I think there, there's something, it, it's always like when... um. TVs and movies try to do a dream sequence, how it never quite works. It's just always like ridiculous or stupid and never actually attains that like 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 birthright or something. Like when they're not grounded by telling the story with their fantastic elements, they're they're insufferable. Yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, I think that's a pretty good analysis actually. You know, Star Trek has plenty of fantasy um backdrops especially with the introduction of the holodeck um the question i guess is whether they keep it rooted enough <sighs> i don't know let's maybe we should just start the episode and you know get the carnage going and see where if we can identify where and when it goes wrong um but yeah obviously kevin <laughs> and i both already have a very strong preconceived notion about the episode, uh, yeah. having watched it at least once and possibly more than once. I know I've seen it at least twice. Yeah, it's, I'd say it's, you know, I've seen it twice. Uh, our, what tilted our decision as to what podcast to do at this stretch of the series was, we think it will be easier to watch this episode once while talking about it so we can distract ourselves from it every so often rather than having to sit alone and pay attention to it undivided. Um, so... That should, that should say something. We're podcasting it not because we love it, but because we dislike it so much that we don't want to have to do nothing but watch it while watching it. Well, and I think it is an interesting exercise to try to decide why we dislike it so much. Um, all right. Well, uh, <laughs> with, without further ado, with such an auspicious introduction, why don't we uh, go ahead and get started? So we will simultaneously press play. Uh, in three, two, one, press play now. So, at this point, Paris is back on the ship 
after investigations, which I thought was a fun episode. Um, and so they're kind of like back together as, as, you know, bro buddies. I find it interesting that, well, I mean, actually, they're hanging a lantern on the idea that someone can hear his performance through a future wall. Yeah. Do you think Garrett always... Wang knows how to play clarinet? I, I, I know enough about music that I always like to see, like, guitars and pianos are the worst when it's just painfully visible that they're not really playing the notes. If he was miming it, he was miming it at least well enough to deceive me as someone who doesn't play the clarinet. No, I'm pretty sure he does, and he is, of course, in a rock band now, so I think he's a musician. And so we're getting some um, dialogue here, you know, with uh, Susan Nicoletti. Uh, not when she plays the oboe. <laughs> you know, it, it, so far, a minute and 30 in, not bad, right? Well, they haven't done anything wrong yet. They haven't actually gotten to the plot. So we're heading to the bridge, and we're picking up communication satellites, non-functional. That is some crappy planet CGI right there. Yeah, not the best looking. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's reminiscent of some of the planets they would do in TNG, where it just looked like a gas giant. Yeah. But it was supposed to be rocky and inhabited. So, I, again, this is actually a pretty decent setup, you know? A major solar flare has uh, changed the climate of a planet, yet it used to be inhabited. I mean, don't you agree, Kevin, that that's inherently interesting? Yeah, yeah. How many places could you spin off from from here, you know? Uh, of course, this does uh, raise, and I carefully avoid the use of the word beg the question here, um, why they picked the direction they did, but... <laughs> Uh, what do you mean, the, for the Voyager crew? Or? Yeah, well, like, I'll, I'll say, yeah, like, um, wasn't that the plot element in the Binar episode, the impending solar event and how they responded? And that was a fun episode. I, there's a thousand ways you could examine the impact of a climate disaster caused by solar flare, and they picked the and they picked this one. That. Well, you know, I mean, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get to the setup. I even think the setup is interesting going further than this. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a, it's really a somewhat prescient, uh, you know, topical science fiction story because of course, you know, now for, for 11001001, it was being told in 1987 and it was, you know, sort of forecasting the vulnerability of an intensely connected society. Uh, you know, now we're in what, 1996? Uh, the internet is in the sort of stage of like CompuServe, AOL, <laughs> right? Yeah. And Amazon.com has just come on the scene or something, you know. But, I, I mean, this is really solid sci-fi. What happens to a technological society when a galactic scale, you know, or solar system-wide scale event occurs? Great. This is, I mean... My brain is tickled. I'm interested. I want to know. Um, 
so yeah, Kevin, you say it raises the question of why they go toward this solar system. I mean, I guess what, what do you think their modus operandi is? I don't know. Uh, my, my point was of all the jumping off points of this setup, the one we're going to get over the course of this episode boggles me. Um, but yeah, I guess Neelix said it was a, a trading post some time ago, and this is starting to stretch credulity. They've been traveling at high warp for two years. How much could he re like? At what point should Neelix just stop being useful? Yeah. I mean, I, I could believe maybe two or three years worth of uh, time. You know, because maybe he's been at it for 10 years, you know, 15 years. Yeah. Mm. Okay, this right, actor looks so like... So it's a settlement. And they're receiving an automated signal. Artificial hibernation. I, okay, so this does raise some serious questions. I mean, if they have the technology to hibernate for 15 to 20 years, can't they just leave the planet? Yeah, you think they'd have... Well, and the time to implement such a, such a yeah. plan, you know? I mean, there probably could have been a way that they could have hung a lantern on that and... You know, just said, oh, well, they cannibalized all their equipment because it's some sort of settlement and they couldn't have built ships or something, you know. I don't know. So we've got, they're searching the surface, one kilometer, two kilometers, 2.3 kilometers down, extremely faint biosignatures. I always kind of wondered about sensors <laughs> and what they do. Yeah, those are pretty, those are, those are, those are some pretty accurate sensors. Well, are there any particulate emissions that a human body emanates that could penetrate 2.3 kilometers of rock? I mean, that's why we put uh, neutrino detectors that far down. Right? Yeah. Because it's enough to isolate basically all of human civilization. Um, so we have to think maybe... The, the scanners themselves are sending out something, right? Yeah. Now, this was an interesting choice, beaming up the uh, doodads. It's, how is this not a crazy Prime Directive problem? Yeah, very good question. And so they're all hooked up to this interesting contraption, and... I just have to give a shout-out to anyone who's played Fallout 3. Um, Fallout 3 essentially totally cannibalized this of all episodes uh, to create a mission scenario in the Fallout 3 universe. And it was uh, people who had survived the nuclear catastrophe hooked up to a computer which had gone amok. So I like this uh, design. It's a pretty cool-looking thing. You know, the sort sort of transparent table with contextual screen and buttons. You know, it, that's a pretty pretty forward-looking design. And so even to this point, with, with the one or two minor questions raised, don't you find this interesting? It's like, what would you do for 19 years if you were hooked to a computer? Yeah. You know, can their brains be linked? You know, do they experience what each other feels? You know, 
I think these are interesting questions, you know, and we're eight minutes in and so far the episode has not yet <laughs> gone into a place where it can't return from. Okay, we got a good mystery. I like the okudograms for the new people, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's always fun in these episodes to pinpoint the precise moment when it went wrong. <laughs> You know, so we're given this notion that the people in the system decide for themselves when it's safe to come out. You know, I've got questions about brain metabolism, you know, like the actual biology of being in hibernation and whether the thing that would make it hibernation would blunt your ability to experience things. You know? Yeah. Because your brain is actually, you know, one of the biggest power sinks, you know, in your body. You know, it. Mo I, I, I don't want to quote it because I don't want to get it wrong, but my understanding is that, you know, a good at least third, maybe half of all of the energy in your body is directed to your brain. You know, the oxygen of the blood, you know, all that stuff. And these are humanoids, and so it just seems like... Uh, I don't know. I have questions science-wise. And now we're given the little hook, you know, the people who are dead actually died from fear. Ha-ha. And again, I don't think this has gone off too badly. I mean, that's interesting. Maybe foreboding. Maybe like, hmm, where are they going with this? I mean, do you think, I think maybe a more interesting story to, to tell would be that these people couldn't agree with each other, that they kind of a biosphere two situation where it's like, if you're cooped up brain to brain with a bunch of other people for 19 years, you would start hating each other. Yeah. I think that's an interesting story angle personally. Yeah. Yeah. And we get the head thingies. This always does seem to happen, doesn't it? Yeah, I kind of want to know time. why they need to be in the tubes. Like, they're not actually <laughs> going into stasis, you know, or like... Or they could just sit in a chair. Right, it just seems unnecessarily claustrophobic. Well, I wonder whether, whether any actors ever had problems with this. You know, like, I wonder what ventilation was like. Now, of course, once they've changed scene, they're probably only in the thing for, you know, 30 seconds of shooting. But I wonder if it gets hot, like, you know, these lights are warm. Some actors have talked about the makeup being claustrophobic. Yeah. I've always been kind of mystified by the, this notion of computers that could stay up for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. All right, so we're in the holographic environment, or not holographic, the mental computerized environment. Yeah. I, I will say, okay, I marginally enjoyed cost of living slightly, incrementally more than you did, but I, the like, even watching this as a kid, I'm like, oh, my first thought was, this looks like that stupid colony from cost of living. Yeah. It, you know what it is? These must, be, yeah, it, it, these must be characters generated by the computer. To do what? God. Like, it's just, I think it's that... Anytime Star Trek tries to do these kind of like circusy fantasy things, 
it loses focus. Like, yeah, what is the point of this? Like, even before the clown went psycho or something, who thought this was a fun place to, like, hang out? Like, it's so... And there's the little person. There, there, I forget what movie it was, and I've only seen this clip of it, I think, and that's why I can't remember. But the direct, it's, it, it, the movie is about making a movie, and they're filming a dream sequence. And I think it's actually Peter Dinklage who plays the the little person who goes, you know, this is just lazy. I'm a dwarf, and I don't dream about dwarves. You just have a dwarf, and you'd be like, ooh, it's a dream. And that's exactly what this is. This is like visually chaotic imagery with no real focus or purpose that's supposed to indicate dreams, but just looks like like visual like someone vomited their brain on the screen the colors like instead of appearing like taut or chaotic it's just like visual vomit it's just yeah well yeah so i mean like what is this room you know you could create anything literally anything like you're not even limited by the physical abilities of a holodeck to create something and this is what's created. Like even if they committed to something a little more visually cohesive, like um, like with all the masks, you know, I think like like you know like Venetian Carnival or something, you know, like or like the Commedia dell'arte characters, like that would at least have a little more focus. Like they well, they did such good things in Death Wish with the you know desert town, you know, like that's all you had to do. Pick a location. This this is a script that's begging for a location and not a set, you know? Yeah, and like, like all of these like big monochromatic colors, it doesn't look dreamlike, it looks cheap. That's that's part of my problem too. It doesn't look like Yeah, it just looks cheap, I agree. It looks chintzy. Um And I'm sure lots of people are begging for Harry to get it here. Yeah. I finally remembered. I, I had to look it up just now, but I rec- re- recognize the ambassador here. Um, he's Kira's father. Oh, interesting. Like, uh, I kind of feel like they got that guillotine from like Batman, the nineteen sixties TV yeah. show, or something. Which, which, there's another thing. Like, it, it's that, like nineteen sixties Batman had a similar color palette and makeup style, and like that just felt bad. Like, you know, it was. Campy oh, it was going for it. Right. Like, had, had you put them in a 1960s episode of Batman, I probably would have been fine. <laughs> like, that, I, that would have been interesting. And here's another problem. Michael McKean is a good actor. He's a funny man. He can do a lot. He could not do this. It could be the fact that he's wearing car floor mats. And, um... Yeah, okay, so we have to determine whether it's just production values, which are admittedly horrible, or if there's anything else that's really making this intolerable. Well, the Uh, dancing isn't helping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess from a conceptual standpoint, the notion that these people would have created something that could do this and would be like this is beyond irritating. What are those masks on the wall for? You know, like with mustaches. 
are these programs so it's like there are lots of interesting stories that have done things kind of like this well okay so if the whole reason this is going on is the computers can obtain some kind of self-awareness and understands that letting the people go will remove the structure to this universe you at least have to make them more likable you know like uh even what's her name uh locira in uh when she they, like the the chick who was trying to kill everyone with the touch in the original series, I, I'm blanking yeah. on the name. She had more like appeal and interest in just like the five minutes she was on screen to be like, oh, you're at, okay, I get it. Like there's just like if you really want to have like I hate to say you're mentioning Death Wish. You know who can pull off this mix of menace and humor is John DeLancey, like. And that's maybe closer to the model they should have been going for, like a character who could be by turns manic and dark. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I think you hit on something good, and that is, if the character is at least at all appealing, it can add an interesting, uh, you know, duality to the story. Like half the time you root for him, half the time you hate him. You know, maybe you think he's got a point that he shouldn't die. You know, but here he's just irritating you know part of it i think is the costume like you say um and that's the, like maybe if why, they had gone... why would why would he kill the other two people if he needed mine right was it in an attempt to cow the other three? I just the story is starting to lose cohesion, if you will. <laughs> it doesn't help that these are aliens of the week and people I don't care about. You you know what episode will kind of do a riff on this a hell of a lot better is uh what's it called? Is it one? Is that the the one when Seven and the Doctor are alone on the ship and she starts freaking out? Oh yeah, like that's far more interesting and atmospheric and just better executed. And I care about Seven by that point, so when she starts to have a meltdown, I'm I'm there. Well, you know, another thing that really could have uh, made this better. So these are computer programs who are using the material inside the minds of the people connected, right? Yeah. So they could just do a bottle show, you know, with lots of weird stuff happening on Voyager with Voyager actors and Voyager characters, people that we already like and are interested in. And then you spin them off and do something strange with them. And yes, you still have guest stars, you know, uh, you could have Michael McKeon, you could have, you know, the aliens, right? Yeah. But they, they could be in the Voyager milieu and that could be twisted in ways that are creepy and interesting for us. This is neither creepy nor interesting. It's, it's insipid and annoying. Also, the the discussion of fear here is pretty bland. It's like these are these are surfacey fears. Like if if you ask someone what they're most afraid of, they they might not tell you the, the like the real thing that keeps them awake at three in the morning. They're going to give you something boring like spiders. You know, like like none of the fears here are that terribly interesting. He 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 misses family. He's afraid of failure. That's not like there. If you really wanted to dig into these characters, there could be something far more interesting and darker somewhere that could really give the whole fear focus a little more teeth. Yeah. You need to, you need to delve. If you're only going to focus on these two characters, yeah, then really tell us something deep about them. Absolutely. 
you know, like maybe have Libby cheat on Harry, right? Like, like it's the difference between, like, Janeway's biggest concern isn't the thought, like, it's a surface analysis to say her biggest fear or regret is not getting the crew home or not getting them home sooner. But if you look at it, you know, like more intimately and more analytically, you could spin that as something much darker, like the guilt that threatens to overwhelm her or something like there's a way to pitch that in a way that's not so one note. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so now I'm thinking about uh, absolutely fabulous episode, Remember Me, which does something similar it does what this episode should do. Right. It, it takes a very surfacey thing, like the generic fear of growing old or being alone, and really digs into it and gives and gives it teeth. It, it creates that like there's something below that that you know, like when it really if it really hits you the right way, it, you almost lose the ability to talk. It's just that that kind of thing, that kind of fear. So like, and remember, you make a good point. Remember me pitches the fear of loneliness in a really ver- verging on terrifying way. And they never well, and get part any... of the reason it's so terrifying is it takes uh, settings and characters that we're already familiar with. Right. You know, and then twists them in strange ways. You know, I mean, it's creepy as hell when Captain Picard, who we know and love and we know exactly how he interacts with his crew, starts blithely accepting, you know, yeah. that they're all gone. You know, it makes no sense to us, and it, it bothers us on a really deep level. Having a clown be irritating is just irritating. You know, it would be better if Janeway were the clown. You know, if Tuvok were the clown. If it were Janeway who were, was torturing them, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Now they're having this meeting in the dark. Yeah, I don't know why it's in the dark. <laughs> So I, I agree that a lot of this discussion of fear is relatively cliche, too. Uh, fear is the most primitive, the most primordial of biological responses. Like, <laughs> I do. I do like uh, the Death Stare was pretty. The good. way they look at Neelix here. Yeah, I just I think there was an opportunity the here uh, to really dig into something more complicated. Like maybe fear. Like I, I think fear can be a fairly blanket term for a lot of what the clown is so allegedly going for. There's you know regret and guilt and remorse and like there's a lot of ways you could pitch what you're afraid of that I think they really could have dug into that. And that might've given well, yeah. a bite. What do they mean by fear? Do they mean fright or do they mean, you know, angst, right? Yeah. It's like, I think angst is much more interesting than fright. So what should Harry's fear be? Right. I mean, I think it should be fear that he's never going to, uh, have the life that he wanted, you know, that he was heading towards as a fresh-faced academy graduate. You know, he's never going to have a wife. He's never going to have kids. He's never going to have a career. He's going to be a freaking ensign for the rest of his natural life on this 75-year trip to nowhere, right? Yeah. And I think, 
you could write two or three really good scenes digging into that. You could do some makeup. You could have Harry get old, right? I mean, so there's there's another uh, reference right there. Um, what's the TOS episode where they get old? Um, uh, it's escaping me right now. The crew gets old, and Uhura sees her face in the mirror, and she's oh, terrified. Yeah, yeah, I know which one you're talking. Blink of an eye. No, that that that's a Voyager episode. Anyhow, you know, getting into uh, makeup stories. You know, oh well, there you go. Are you afraid of growing old? <laughs> uh, See, and that's not what he fears. And then the oversized. I mean, come on. Well, the episode just can't decide what it wants to do. Like, is it going to be absurdist? Is it? Yeah. That's pretty good makeup, I have to say. Yeah. He looks quite old, and it doesn't look very fakey. Okay. And the, maybe around the ears. Baby Harry. Okay, I, I, if I ever have children, I totally want those little Starfleet onesies. Yeah. That, that's just too adorable for words. Um, well, and I think they scaled down the communicator pin too. <laughs> I wonder whose kid that is and how okay they were with <laughs> being tossed like that. Like, even if you wanted to lean on this, like, absurd... Like, what are the streamers there for? Come on. Like, is that is well, that scary? I do find rhythmic gymnastics unspeakably terrifying, but that's neither here nor there. Like, what if... You could do it that way. Like, if you wanted to do, like, this crazy cacophony where you could never get your bearings and everything was constantly changing and purposefully annoying that might even work like that would drive me insane like you know just well, see i think it would drive the viewer insane too which is the which is the problem you know so i i think what you need to do is choose like if this is a hairy episode you know so you know we're talking about some we're getting this stuff in dialogue Rather than, right? yeah. But they should just create scenes, you know, real scenes. Well, like... um, Like, have us do flashbacks. A, Show a, us Earth. Show us Harry's life. A mildly, a, an intermittently successful episode of Violations had some awesome scenes, like uh, Picard and Crusher uh, walking into the morgue. That was a good scene. Yeah. No, so yeah, like that episode or something like Tapestry, right? You know... Tapestry, of course, is a fabulous episode, and it does something very similar. It goes into a regret of one of the characters, and it spins a scenario out of it. You know, But here we have like a giant Mardi Gras monster putting a surgical mask on a clown in a pastel-colored operating theater with no real set dressing. Yeah. And so there's nothing I can latch on to, right? It's like I know – that Harry's not going to be cut open and killed. Especially right? on this show. Like, if it were if it were an HBO or an AMC show, sure, there might be a little blood. If there's a break, even bad, that wouldn't be terribly interesting. Yeah. Even that wouldn't be terribly interesting because it would just be gore, you know? Yeah. The reason that those episodes that we've been talking about were so good was because they created a world and they put the character in the world, a world that was very different from the world that we know them in. You know, it's like this just doesn't do it. For me right so all right our plot twist here at 27 minutes is that the doctor is swooping in and i do like that from 
an idea standpoint. Yeah, it, it, they haven't done this since what was it? Uh, Hero, whatever Heroes the and Demons. Grendel, yeah, Heroes and Demons. Um, and we're gonna see more of it in the future with the Doctor. You know, it's like, well, he's the one we can send, right? Um, and and Robert you know, Picardo's good at um, the deadpan humor. I have a very trustworthy face. I'm here by yeah. miracle of technology. He. And here's like here's the thing. Michael McKean has been in about ten thousand things that I have loved to bits. He's kind of at sea here. Like there's no real rudder for the craziness or the menace or the screaming. And it's like and I go back to John Delancey because like you picture Q who he could turn from mocking to terrifying at a moment. And that's really what this episode calls for. And I'm not saying I don't think the actor can do it. I think the script just didn't give him the support it needed to to make those things work. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Michael McKeon could do it. But, I mean, what have they basically given him here? They're like, you are a computerized clown that wants to live. And... You live in this world with a bunch of circus freaks. You know, it, it's like, how does he find the character, right? Well, that, uh, the, you know? the, I think that's the nail. There is no character. Like, it's just, there's no real motivation. There's no real, and, and you know, even with Q, to, you know, go back to, keep going back to a good character, his motivations are not always visible. That doesn't mean they're not clearly there for the character. There is no purpose for the clown character inside his head i think that the much more interesting thing to do with this setup would have been to have one of the people turn and be the villain of the story yeah you know like have them be like a mind rapist or a controlling dictator or you know something right it's like if i were hooked to a computer for 19 years and i had to be with for other people and never anybody different, you know, I could totally see someone going insane, you know, literally being insane. And then the other four sane brains have to deal with that insane person. And maybe they can't, you know, maybe they're not equipped to do it. Um, so, you know, I'm spinning off of what you're saying here. I think uh, having it be some kind of computer program makes it very difficult to write for, and it makes it very difficult to act um and it makes it very difficult for us to care yeah you know? <sighs> i mean really at this point the question is if there's anything redeeming in this episode so far well we don't really learn anything about harry yeah like fear of growing old fear of illness loss of loved ones i mean not to dismiss those concerns but they're fairly universal well and they dispensed with them in like 10 seconds a piece you know and who has a fear of being a baby? Does anybody have that fear? <laughs> like, fear of being infantilized in old age, maybe, but fear of being an actual infant? Is that a thing? Is that... <laughs> well, you know, the, the greatest fear things, like, um, like, uh, oh, I keep thinking, uh, coming of age, when that's, like, apparently part of Starfleet's entrance exam. <laughs> like, I yeah. still refuse to believe that. Yeah. Um, but I liked the idea that Rather than going for spiders, they went for his greatest fear is basically being responsible for the same situation that killed his father. 
Well, they went for an existential fear. Right. That's at least interesting. Uh, There's a great series of Deep Space Nine books where the characters all get stuck in a Paw Wraith vision. And one of my favorites was Chief O'Brien's was being stuck on the planet inside the Dyson Sphere with no tools to analyze it. So the, 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 the thing that would drive him the most crazy would be sitting inside an incomprehensibly large engineering piece with no ability to figure it out. And like that for like an unquantifiable period of time. And I'm like... All right, that's at least novel. I appreciate well, I, the I have to point out here, we're being given scenes in which computer programs talk to other computer programs. Yeah. You know, and this is going on for several minutes, you know? And it's just... Where Where is the editorial staff in here saying, you know what, I just don't think this is going to fly? Just, I don't care about these people. I already have a cloaking device. Yeah, on some level, part of my problem with this episode is it's such like a uniform waste. You know, like the actor is good. The part, like the the basic setup from the first five minutes was interesting, and then it just, yeah. So I don't understand what they're offering here. What what does a cloaking device do for them? Ensure your safety. But they won't have people, right? Or are they lying and saying that they're going to abscond? They're going to leave the natives here. Yeah. I I mean, I know that he's just stalling, and so it's not a, a real offer. So the little blinking LEDs is not a great thing. Although I do like the disappearing effects on the Walls, admittedly yeah. awful <laughs> setback. Well, anything get, that gets rid of the decorations makes me yeah. happy. Well, you know, I mean, part of what makes this setting so awful, it reminds me of like a toddler play area, um, you know, with like things that you crawl through. Yeah. And I just, it's like if I were an adult and I were creating a you know computerized fantasy world for myself, you know, it might be like a harem with like piles of naked women. It might be a library with, you know, or, or a museum with the best art ever. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it, it's just <sighs> not rhythmic gymnastics. Well, they were going for like garish and, and it just doesn't work. It's like clearly based on their machinery, these people have an aesthetic which is much more evolved than that, right? Yeah. What room is this? Like, is it just part of a soundstage? Uh, yeah. I'm having a hard time getting past the set design, which is really saying something because we've watched plenty of shows that, you know, yeah, it's just... The, the set design on Star Trek has not always been great, but this is so bad that it rips you out of the drama. Like, even Move Along Home wasn't that bad. It was visually better than this. Um, yeah. I mean, look, it, it was awful in many other ways. What was it? The Empath. Even that was it Actually, compared to this, The Empath actually kind of worked. 
I mean, at least we didn't have to look at anything. Yeah. You know, nothing is better than this. I mean, look, I I think guillotines are inherently kind of like upsetting. Yeah. And, you know, they're playing this scene pretty well in terms of setup and execution of camera angles and, you know, showing us that he had a heart failure and all this stuff. So, like, maybe they should have just gone full-on French Revolution, you know? Or, some, yeah, just something with a little more internal cohesion, as that would have uh, given it just an anchor point. I don't get why they're killing the people that they need to survive. Anyhow, they could do like, you know, as we've been talking about, they could do like maybe they would pull a French Revolution scenario from Harry's mind, from Janeway's mind. You know what would be terrific if Janeway were in this thing and they pulled her Hala novel? Yeah. And they resolved the freaking Hala novel in a horror milieu. We saw the mom and she was the monster and she was killing people, you know, whatever, right? There are so many interesting things that they could have done and did not do. <sighs> it's really frustrating. It's frustrating because Voyager has done a good job with exactly the sorts of things that would fix this. And it's it's just boggling to the mind that they missed it. Yeah, just... Okay, I who is responsible for this? Like, this doesn't even feel like a Brandon Braga plot that you know got lost. Now Braga usually does a somewhat better job <laughs> of uh, making it at least okay, tolerable TV. Uh, teleplay by Joe Manoski, story by Richard Gaddis, who I don't think has any other credits. Uh, directed by Marvin Rush. So Joe Manoski. Okay, he did masks. The hair. Yeah, Legacy, meh. Clues, good. First Contact, great. An assist on the teleplay. Nth Degree is all his, uh, which we liked. Darmok helped on the teleplay. Masks is all his. Yeah, didn't. It's better than this. Yeah. But clearly he's got a thing with masks, you know. Uh -huh. um, hmm. Dramatis Persona, <sighs> Distant Voices, Times Orphan. Times Orphan was pretty good in DS9. Yeah. <coughs> uh, you know, his Voyager stuff isn't all that bad here. So look, everybody has a miss <laughs> every now and again. Um And this is it. Joe, if you're listening, this is your miss. I assume you know it. I mean, how could you not, right? I assume you feel let down by the set design. Um, you know, you'd probably be too diplomatic to say that you thought the actors muffed it. And I don't think the actors could really do anything with this here. I'm really bothered by the little person. It's just cheap and stupid. Like, 
Well, now, you're bothered by it here, but you weren't in Farpoint, let's say. What was there one? Oh, oh God, yeah. I forgot about that one. Um, See, I think I wasn't worried about it in Farpoint because it wasn't – it didn't seem as gratuitous. It was like this is a motley collection of humans, whereas here it's this person is creepy because they're small. Right. It's like – yeah, it's it, it almost feels like un-Star Trek-y to – And they to, give her oversized props to like – Accentuator, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's nothing appealing, even assuming when this was working, about this thing. And I'm trying to think, we've had episodes like this before where, you know, like the fantasy world and the creature who inhabited it was like enticing, like, uh, what's his face? Um, the kid in um, Future Imperfect. Okay, yeah. Obviously, Riker was, would never choose to stay in that fantasy world, but you could at least build a case internally for why it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Like, you know, you got a kid, your captain, uh, Crusher kept it tight. What's what's that? That's a perfectly acceptable universe. Like, Hmm. Now I'm just looking at some of the, uh, okay. Now this is sort of a, the big finale and it's sort of a single take Janeway versus clown, uh, scenario. I, I, I like the idea, you know, to, to pit the captain mano a mano against the villain but i think as you say since the villain is inherently uninteresting like it, if this villain were one of the colonists that would be something you know but the villain isn't interesting and so you know captain picard q face-offs are interesting because at least on some level we have an idea of q as a character this I, I want to be interested, but I can't. And and Michael McKean is giving it his all here, and with an actor to like actually play off of. This is, I think, far and away his best scene in the show. Not that that's yeah saying much. Yeah, I mean he's not capering. So even if the, all of this were going to be the backdrop, the clowns aren't scary. They're just annoying, you know. Yeah. And I know that's a lot of people have fear of clowns and you know whatever, but this is more interesting because it's about the character, and it actually gives us dialogue that we can try to get inside his head, right? Yeah, and, and it's a neat, uh, um, so the the trick ending here is pretty good. Yeah. They, they tricked him. Hell, Moriarty would have been a better... Like, like I, I'm thinking of all the episodes this makes me think of that are all far superior. <laughs> well, okay. So do you think that... Uh, I know some people have lambasted Voyager as recycling uh, previous plots, you know? I don't think this is recycling. The no, no, no. Plot. I don't is think it... they. I don't think this is a straight recycle. I, 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 
I think I'll start to have that complaint a little farther down the line. And even then, you know, you get the same five people in a room writing stories. They're going to come back to themselves, even if they're knocking it out of the park every time. I mean, you know what Mad Men was about this week? Don Draper having a bad day and being an alcoholic. That's not, it's a bit of a rehash, but that's kind of the point. I'm just saying it's, um, uh, this, this reminds yeah, this is... me of better episodes, but it is not a rehash of better episodes. Um, I feel like we're supposed to learn something about Janeway from this, but mainly I think all I'm learning is that she's resourceful. She likes being dramatic. You eventually vanish. It's like, is she evil? So it's an interesting fade out, you know, with the lights. Um, <sighs> I'm just, I'm just going to come out and say it. Although there are things that seem specifically keyed to piss me off <laughs> about this episode, because I have so hated previous clown slash circus performer outings, I do think this is better than Threshold. Really? Yeah. And the reason I think so is because the setup in the first 10 minutes was reasonably strong. And the resolution just, I mean, it didn't self-destruct in the way. Like, at the end of this episode... I feel, you know, poorer for having watched it. <laughs> I wish I had done something else with my time. Um, but no characters are destroyed. You know, no overall premises are called into question. You know, and so it's just kind of stupid and forgettable, right? And Threshold had the potential to be something great. Like, this had the potential to be something okay, and so maybe it, it's because the the fall is less. It's it's blunted. It's it's not you know the distance between my expectation and the result is uh, smaller than threshold. I'll give you um, that. I I just I mean we're talking like Hitler Mussolini here or you know Hitler Stalin right? It it's very it's very fine grades of being awful you know. But I think Threshold is worse because, I mean, it fundamentally totally biffed on evolution. You know, it called the premise of its own show into such deep question as to, you know, basically call for the end of the show, right? Um, and, you know, the Chakotay character was made to look awful by his unilateral decision. Uh, to destroy my life, right? I mean, do you disagree with this? You you feel like this is worse? Uh, if so, what? Okay. I'll p Watching this episode even the first time, you know that state when you have the flu real bad and you're like kind of feverish and you can't get comfortable in your bed and everything is like you're simultaneously too hot and too cold and you can't sleep because you feel so disgusting and your brain is producing like 
chaotic, disjointed thoughts that you just like, it's just like the worst part of the flu. That is what watching this episode is like for me. Like I can't be comfortable, but not in a good way. (laughs) Yeah. And like, yeah, it's just like watching it. I'm like, it feels like my brain doesn't work now. I feel like what happened? I like, like this is, is like this a hell. Yeah, am I dying? Yeah, this is a fever dream, and it's just it's it was like a it was like a draining, unpleasant experience to endure. Where it's like, yeah, yeah, that's like threshold was really good for the first twenty minutes, bizarre and unexpected for the middle twenty, and then a shit show by the end. No one's denying that, but. I don't know, like, maybe because it was also about characters I liked, and, you know, like, like I, I was just a little more invested naturally in Threshold from the start. Um, yeah. yeah, there's just... Just what that... That entire thing was so visually chaotic and stupid that it hurt to watch. Well, okay, so is Move Along Home better or worse than Ooh. Threshold? Move Along Home has a good quirk speech... Um, move along. I feel like Threshold is better than Move Along Home. Threshold is better than Move Along Home. Is this better than Move Along Home? Oof. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's close. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ask if you ask me on a different day of the week, you might eventually you might get different answers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've really sort of isolated the three. Uh, Code of Honor, Move Along Home, Threshold, and the Thaw. And, you know, so now that we've talked about it, I'm actually going to reverse what I just said and say that Threshold should probably be accepted from that group. As the nadir of their respective series? Yeah, and instead it's just uh, Code of Honor. What would be the worst TOS? Not Spock's brain. Everyone says Spock's brain. I found no, Spock's not. brain definitely not bizarrely Cat's, charming. Cat's paw. Cat's paw. It's got to be Cat's paw. I mean, or the what? apple. We ended up. Didn't we end up giving the apple like a three? Yeah. No, that was the, no, no, no. The app. I, I, I always confuse the apple and whatever that one with the hippies was. Oh, the way to Eden. Yeah. So okay, apple and cat's paw are neck and neck for. Worst of the series. That's. I think I'm Cat's Paw's worse. Cat's than Paw's, the Cat's Paw's worse. Um. Oof. God. Yeah. And then. Oof. Well, and Cat's Paw and the Thaw are actually united uh, thematically in many ways. You know, it's all about fear and like, uh, you know, Halloweeny kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And actually, to some degree, Move Along Home is. <laughs> Is also very similar. Uh, it's only Code of Honor that um, goes into a special place. <laughs> okay, so I'm reversing my previous stance. I think the thought is worse than Threshold. Um, I get. I, I think I was just being kind of uh, lured in by how the premise could be done in so many more interesting ways, but that doesn't excuse the way it's actually executed here. Yeah. Um, and you're right. You know, Michael McKeon has been a lot of fun and a lot of things. Not here. Um, we don't learn anything about the characters. 
So we don't have that. And the threshold had that. It at least told us something interesting about Tom Paris. Um, yeah, so look, this is a one. I mean, we gave threshold a one. And if this is worse, by definition, it is also a one. Um, is there anything redeeming in this at all? Like, no. Maybe only the barest bones of the premise. Yeah. Yeah, no, there was just nothing here that... And uh, what's his name? The the actor who played uh, Kira's father. I like him as Kira's father in the uh, handful of appearances. He's played a bunch of stuff over the series. I think he was in... Well, he was a total nothing character in this Yeah, episode. just so you, you, like, you had good people. You just didn't do anything with them. Um... None of the aliens were interesting. None of the constructs were interesting. Uh, maybe if you wanted to really stretch, you could say that the Robert Picardo angle was okay-ish. Yeah. But he's he's been much better in other stories. Yeah. He, he used to much better effect, you know. I mean, we just got a very good episode with him in uh, Life Science, right? Yeah. Um, and... Even Heroes and Demons, for whatever its flaws were, uh, is way better than this. Yep. That's that's by no means my favorite episode. <laughs> by no means. <laughs> it's it's definitely below uh, the the good part of the bell curve in Voyager. Yeah. So I I think you know. Sorry, Joe Manoski. This is definitely worse than Masks, right? Yeah. If we're talking about Joe Manoski failures. Yeah, and I hated have... Masks. Yeah, I disliked Masks. You reviled it. Um, well, it, it it's just one of those things that writers sometimes do. You can you can just feel them in a room by themselves or with like one other writer, just like giggling with anticipation at how clever they're being. You know, it's like, oh, this is going to be so clever, right? We're going to show some alien race from 10 different perspectives. Ooh, hoo, hoo, I'm so clever, right? But it it's like one writer in a thousand that can do something that cute well, you know? And so, like, I feel like a similar thing was going on here. It's like, oh, this is so clever. He's going to be like a personification of an emotion, right? But then you do nothing interesting with that at all, you know? Yeah, this is terrible. Um, so the writing is a one. The acting, I mean, nobody's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but absolutely nobody transcends the material. And if one person needed to transcend it, it would have been Michael McKeon, right? Yeah. Is this material even transcendable in that? You know, to coin a phrase, can it be transcended? Could John Delancey have made this okay? No. Yeah, I don't think he could have. I mean, if he couldn't do it in Culus, he can't do it here. Um, but really, when it comes down to it, I feel like production values are what totally sink this episode. If you had taken this exact same story with exactly the same dialogue, and put it in any other backdrop, I think it might have gained a point. You know? Do you agree? 
Do you disagree? Uh, I don't know what I feel anymore. This uh, <laughs> uh, this episode. Kevin, Kevin's brain is shutting down. Yeah, I yeah, I have nothing to add. I'm I'm looking at the notes on Memory Alpha, and several people in the production of this episode seemed to like it, and that yeah. boggles me. Well, and so Cinefestique gave it two out of four stars. Star Trek Monthly gave it three out of five. You know, despite this relatively lukewarm rating, John Freeman, the editor of the same publication, cited this episode as his favorite from the entirety of Star Trek Voyager. This is a person who edits a Star Trek magazine. I think a lot of people, and maybe on occasion we've been guilty of this as well, where we get such a affection for the idea that we tend to forgive um execution problems more readily than than we should and that seems to be the tone of a lot of the comments in the memory alpha section where everyone was just so enamored of the idea of um an episode about fear that they just were blind to some of the like uh, i'm going to let's watch star trek to see what the aggregate of other um reviewers are uh, they gave it a 1 out of 5, but another reviewer gave it 3 out of 4, 5 out of 10. Like, they seem to decide this is, that, that, that this is decidedly middle of the road. Uh, I hate this episode. So much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Kelly, my wife, is an unabashed lover of Voyager. I mean, she loves it. She loves Voyager, and she refuses to watch this episode, <laughs> and not even because it bothers her. Like again, like or a, like ever? Yeah. Well, she watched it the okay. first time, <laughs> and that was enough, and she will never watch it again. Um, <laughs> and you know, she loves this show. You know, so I don't think it's just you and me, Kevin. I I, I gotta think that the people who like it are anomalous somehow. You know, that, and maybe it's it's a, an unusual coincidence that two of them happen to review Star Trek online. But uh, I I don't know how you could like this. How could a person like this? What's wrong with those people? What explains that? Yeah. Anyhow, yeah, I feel so. like I feel like the production is really it. It just takes it. And, and actually, you know, when we think about cost of living, uh, really, I think production sent that into a special realm of awfulness. Um, and I think, as you say, it's because it, it takes you out of the world. You know, like if I'm watching a period drama in Star Trek and it's like the French Revolution or, you know, uh, Ireland town, right? I'm like, okay, I'm watching Star Trek and they're on the holodeck and I'm okay with this, right? And I'm sort of, I'm amused and delighted by the fact that the holodeck can create something like this. And if the story goes to pains to, you know, show that little touches are uh, imperfect or uh, intentional, like that that pleases me, right? So the fact that Tom was supposed to be the author of the Fairhaven program, right? It it sort of it it made whatever inconsistencies and stupidities were there fun. Oh, I Whereas still didn't this, like Fairhaven, but I I, well, take I, I like Fairhaven a lot, but we'll get there. Um 
anyhow, like this is supposed to be where these people have lived for 19 years. And it's supposed to be something they created for themselves. And so either you have to think that they created a place that looked like this, or that this computer program changed it to look like this. But where would he have gotten the material for it except from them? And so I'm just made to feel that the aliens, the, the real aliens, are so stupid that I don't care if they die, you know? It's just a disaster. It's, it's a total mess, you know? Yep. All right. Yeah, I have nothing big, to add. To big that. question. Is this better or worse than the Abrams reboot? Oof. Oh, I don't care. I'm never going to watch either of them again. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to say better. <laughs> uh, I'm going to abstain. I, I can't actually... I can't say better or... I can't come up with a reason for either to be better that makes any sense in my head. Because if I say that, if I say this episode, it feels like I'm just bashing the Abrams movies and I have plenty <laughs> of valid reasons to do that. I don't need to bring this episode into it to do that. And if I say the Abrams is better, I just don't like saying those words. So yeah. well, um, when I, I say that, I think this is better. I'm, I'm trying hard to actually, yeah, just not have it be a knee jerk response, you know, like, <laughs> Nothing is worse than the Abrams movies. <laughs> Even though I think that, but that's not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I do think it's better <laughs> because there are still real Star Trek characters in this, you know, and they're still behaving the way Star Trek characters would behave. The story is awful. <laughs> the writing is bad. The set designs suck and the actors are completely sabotaged by the material. But <laughs> it's still a Star Trek story, you know, yeah. which makes it better, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing this is a one from you? Yes. Yes, it is. It is a one from me as well. That is a well-deserved two out of ten. And I mean, they worked for it this week. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I think a few words should be said about Voyager in general. I know a lot of people have really bagged especially on like seasons two and three of Voyager. And I got to say, you know, we've hit a run of some pretty good episodes, uh, you know, the past couple of discs. Like they've sort of dispensed with some of the Kazon crap. And... Even the more, more recent Kazan episode, Investigations, it had a very interesting story angle, which was Tom Paris's uh, expulsion from the ship. Right. You know, and it had, had a briefing with Neelix and stuff. So they've even found ways to make Kazan stories kind of okay. Um, but then we've had a couple of really good episodes. You know, we've had Death Wish, uh, Life Signs, um, you know, and even it feels like they've actually settled into a pretty decent groove in terms of averagely entertaining episodes and it it's just it's kind of mind-boggling how these just utter utter terrible stinker episodes can slip through you know 
do you agree with me or not? I mean, how are you like Kevin is the the person that we're trying to sort of convert to Voyager, right? How are you feeling about Voyager? And I realize it's a difficult question to ask immediately after watching the film, yeah. but yeah. Um, um, uh, I feel like the run of second season, like I'm trying to reserve revisiting my overall opinion of Voyager right now. Cause I, I remember leaving the Voyager series with a feeling of just some story inconsistency and some just, I, yeah, like I, my memories of season two have not been very much altered by the re-review. I remember being like, okay, like, like if you showed me a list of season two episodes, I'd be like, well, that one's good. That one's good. That one's great. And yeah, the rest of these you know, are like meld. soft like metal. Was great. Yeah. Um, Death wish. But there was a stretch of Kazon that made me want to, rip my hair out and the Seska thing kind of got away from them. I feel like they created something they didn't know how to control. Um, I, you know, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I feel like this season is going to bear out pretty close to like TNG season two. You know, hmm. I really think it will. And I think it's going to probably end up rating better than some of DS nine's worst. Um, um, it'll be, it'll be, it remains to be seen how far, you know, these two episodes, Threshold and Death Wish, drag things down. But, you know, just looking at it, um, you know, uh, Meld is spectacular. Non Sequitur is good. 37s was fun. Um, you know, Persistence of Vision, Tuvix, uh, deadlock you know there are a lot of solidly average to quite good episodes here and i don't know i don't know like if someone tuned in and this was the first episode they thought they saw you could very well excuse them for never tuning in again right yeah to be like wow this is what star trek is now <laughs> um but so part of the reason I'm sticking with this idea that this is better than the Abrams movies is that on some level I'm already invested in these characters, you know, and I care what they do. And what I feel when I watch this is that this is a total wasted opportunity. Not that these characters are bad now and I don't like them. You know, I'm just like, what the hell just happened? Like, why didn't they do something good with the characters that I already like? You know, that that's where I'm at with this. It's a terrible episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sure. Um, we are done with this nightmare, uh, literally and figuratively. Um, yeah. And with that, uh, we are going to review a much better episode next time. I, I insist. <laughs> I think there's no no way we can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's axiomatic. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, everyone. Yes. Uh, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. Good night.